Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash surface pro eight. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, and welcome to T Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast, the most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink. We play games. We have the song of the week. We have the creative curse word of the week. As long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. My guest for this episode is Seth Partno, my colleague at The Athletic, and our focus, not surprisingly, is on the ongoing NBA Finals, but we also get into some other interesting stuff, including some of the little off-season things, teams that have disaster potential beyond this year, and a lot of really fun ground for these finals themselves and what we're learning about it. So, pod runs a little bit over an hour. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. It is always a pleasure. I have really enjoyed these finals so far. I Part of why I've enjoyed it is that there have been a lot of twists and turns, but I'm having trouble. Like People have been asking me, you know, like we have these long gaps between games during this. Like I have friends that are just paying me like, what do you think is going to happen in the series? And I just keep on saying like, I'm really not sure. I haven't been able to get a – like a, every time I've thought I've gotten a read on it, it's been a little bit of a twist. I was wondering if you feel more confident in where this is going than I am. I don't know if I know what the result is going to be. I have I have some pretty good ideas of what it's going to swing on, and then it's just a matter of like which of those things happen. Actually, uh, um, you know, today at the athletic, I have a piece about kind of like four of the of the items that I think are going to determine the the uh, the the outcome of of the these next three games. And it's just it's you know um, you know if Milwaukee continues to offensive rebound like they've been, that is probably good for them. If Phoenix can even that out, uh, you know, that in the transition play, if Phoenix can do a better job of getting, you know, uh, Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre Ayton especially, but there are other guys involved in the offense, like that's advantage them. And it's just, you 
you know, it's kind of like, okay, these are going to be the factors and then let's see what happens. Yeah. I think that's a good way of, a good, a good way of thinking about it. And that was the possession game, including offensive, defensive rebounding is something that really was such a huge force in game four. And I think for the way that I quantified this, which I thought was useful, I think this is kind of in line with the type of thing that you do. Milwaukee took 10 more free throws and 19 more field goals in game four. And so even though the Bucks were less efficient, you know, they shot 40% from the field, they shot basically a similar rate at the line, they were able to make up for their, make up for that comparative lack of efficiency with volume. And I don't think that it's necessarily going to be that extreme every game, but I do think there are tangible material advantages that Milwaukee has that they're probably going to need. Yeah, no, it's, I don't think it's, it is the, Milwaukee's going to have the edge in offensive rebounding every game. I think we can, that's, that's, you know, that, that's reasonably safe to assume given that, you know, Phoenix has one legit big now and they like to play four out a lot and five out a fair amount. Um, but again, it's, it's, is that competitive and is that offensive rebound married to a huge advantage in the turnover battle as well? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, we're at the, Milwaukee is over the series as so far as basically getting between, you know, uh, extra field goal attempts and, and, uh, edge and free throw attempts is getting about 10 extra shot attempts or scoring attempts a game. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of a big deal. It's kind of, it's kind of a big deal. And when you think about the ways that sometimes teams trying to win the possession game can sacrifice other things. So one of the most obvious of that is that if you go hard for offensive rebounds, a lot of times you're sacrificing something in, in transition. And while, I have my qualms with the way scorekeepers log fast break points. The Suns had one fast break attempt in game four. Yeah, no, the, the, again, Milwaukee has had the edge all series in fast breaks. Um, that's not terribly surprising, even though the Suns have pretty good team speed. Chris Paul's teams don't play fast. That's just, that's, that's a rule. Um, cause he's, he's a very deliberate player. Um, but the, the, the difference between, you know, losing fast break points by like two a game, like they did in Phoenix and by 14 a game, which, which they did in Milwaukee. And yeah, as you say, the, the scorekeeper or it's not really the scorekeeper. It's, it's basically, it's just straight when, when events are recorded in the play by play logs. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, which, you know, it can, can vary slightly from arena to arena, but still it's, it's the same for both teams. So yeah, that's a pretty big swing. And I think a pretty big reason why, uh, Milwaukee was able to win games three and four. Um, and it's, it's really, it's interesting you you mentioned um off of attempts for offensive rebounding um because over the course of the season um like Milwaukee was one of the was the the best team in the league at getting out in transition overall and uh, you know both steals and defensive rebounds and Phoenix was the second best team at preventing that um so far this series Milwaukee's kind of winning that battle um, you know, 17% of their, their plays were in transition in the regular season, according to cleaning the glass. And in this series so far, it's 16.4, uh, compared to like the 13% Phoenix allowed during the season. And I think that even understates it a little because, you know, the, because of all the offensive rebounds, uh, the, the denominator is a little bit bigger than it might normally be. So that's just the, the degree to which Milwaukee is playing in transition. Despite the fact their half court offense has been pretty terrible. Oh yeah. Has, is, has been what's sort of allowed them to stay in the, in, in, stay in things. Right. And one of the dichotomies that I found interesting, and these are comparing, it's they're comparing to league average, not comparing to their own efficiency. But so Phoenix during the regular season, they ran more than other teams off of steals and they ran about league average off of live rebounds. And in the last couple of games of the series, the Suns, are getting some live rebounds, but they're not getting as many, and they're not getting steals. And so in, in game four, they only had three, all of which were Jay Crowder. And I, one of those, like another one of those, like doesn't count as fast break points. Jay Crowder got hit in the face by I think it was Pat Connaughton. Didn't it didn't get to a fast break, so it wasn't fast break points, and they were in the bonus a, among the Jay Crowder free throw barrage where he just kept on getting hit in the face. And the Suns are, can be better at that. I, I think that they, you know, forcing turnovers is. One of the, one of the things that this defense can do well. Um, but part of it is as much as I malign and I, 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 you know, like Milwaukee sometimes having this station to station half court offense, sort of like in certain ways they like DeMar DeRozan teams. If you don't move the ball that much, it's actually harder to commit turnovers. It's true. Although in game four, Phoenix had a little bit of the worst of both worlds in yeah. that they, 
they weren't moving the ball and they were committing turnovers. I think that's, um, that's sort of a, that's of a piece with, um, you know, not getting Bridges and Aiton, especially, but also Cam Johnson, Jay Crowder, um, involved in the offense and just to whatever extent it's necessary. Tory Craig, I suppose, um, get them, getting them involved in the offense. Um, Chris Paul is very good at like balancing. Okay. I have an advantage. I can score or I have an advantage. I'm going to draw help and kick. Um, Devin Booker has sometimes ridden that line well and sometimes goes too far towards I'm getting buckets. And I think he was probably on the other side of that line a little bit in game four. Um, he had, you know, uh, despite all the attention he was drawing because of his shot making, he had five potential assists all night. Uh, and and for, for those who are unfamiliar, potential assists includes passes that you make to teammates that they just miss. Yes. Yeah. So five, like basically five passes where if the, if the shot had gone in, it would be an assist. Um, game, I want to say game, uh, two, he had 17 or something like that. Um, and I, that's a, a ball dominant wing score is as much about that setting teammates, letting the, you know, letting the other guys eat as it is the points you put up. Um, this is something we, we, I think we, everyone harped about in the last game, last series where didn't matter if, if Trey Young got 45, the thing that would give Milwaukee problems would be the 12, 14, 16 assists. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, Devin Booker should try to score 20 points and get 10 assists, but instead of being 42 and two, if it's, you know, 36 and eight, or something like that. It's 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 much better and a much better indication of Phoenix's overall offensive kind of flow. And that way, you don't have a situation where like Mikhail Bridges did not take a shot in the second half of Game Four. Right, He's and, and four Aiden only took two. Yeah, I mean, and one of them was was very memorable. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, and actually, like, yeah, and part of that is is a related thing is maybe because he's not getting the ball as much. But Game Four was about the first time all playoffs where. I can remember Aiton, most of his shot attempts being like flippy things, you know, uh, instead of like strong finishes yeah. at the backboard and at the basket. The one time he tried to finish strong was, of course, the the Giannis block, but that's, you know, good on him for going strong. Yeah, and um, he, it seemed like he might have lost the ball a little bit, not to make Giannis's block any less incredible. It was one of the most important... Highlight truther, Danny LaRue. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. No, I, 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 I still think, honestly, even if he lost the ball, I still think it would have gone in. Like, that's, he was close enough, and Aiton has really good hands. I thought he was, I thought yeah, if Giannis wasn't right there, there, he would have regained it and, and done it. But. Yeah, no, it's, it's, just a completely ludicrous play. Like oh, even I mean, in real time and slow motion, any way you look at it, it's it doesn't seem it, plausible. You you and I have discussed. You used, you, I mean, you're the one who brought it into my attention. The term, the geometry of the floor, and I don't know if geometry is the right word or if it's like I don't know space time or, or like basic like kinesiology or something like how Giannis got from one place to the other that quickly, and and something else that he did to his immense credit on that play, which. I I would encourage young players to do, except that it's going to go badly for you a lot of the time, is you don't have to be there when the guy catches the ball if you could just be there when he's trying to throw it down. Like, it's those, like, Alonzo morning blocks or, or numerous other things. Like, Giannis wasn't there when DeAndre Ayton caught the ball. He was there really quickly thereafter. But, like, the idea that I can't get there in time, maybe there needs to be a little bit of a shift in terms of what in time means. Well, he... Um, after the game, he talked about this to, you know, to Eric name, um, like he knew the ball was behind him, but he also knew where he need, where he needed to get to, to, for it to be the, to have the best chance on making a play. So he kind of, you know, sort of blind turned and jumped to a spot, like, which wasn't it, like, it wasn't where the ball was. It was where the ball was going to be going as Aiden tried to dunk it. And so I think that's sort of what, what you're saying, like that sort of, Spatial awareness that, okay, that lob is going to the left side of the rim, so I need to turn and jump to the left side of the rim, and then I can locate the ball once I'm in the air. But the first thing to do is that's the spot I need to get to. Right. Yeah, it's going to be an, – it's an important play no matter what. It was a big part of why the series is 2-2 and potentially not 3-1 because if Aiden makes that, it's it's tied with a little bit over a minute. I think it was one fifteen remaining. Though the Suns weren't really getting many good looks and they weren't making anything other than some free throws during that time. So 
and that actually is, is an interesting wrinkle in this too and ties in with what we were talking about about who's getting shots was that Booker has this unbelievable third quarter. 18 points, you know, nearly got our second 20-point quarter of the series. And then once, you know, whether it was because of Booker's foul trouble or fatigue or anything else, like the Suns, the Suns didn't get many good looks. They weren't moving the ball well. Everything seemed really stagnant in that fourth quarter. And the only thing, honestly, that kept them afloat to the extent that they were afloat during that fourth were those aforementioned Jay Crowder free throws. Like, they were 7 of 19 from the field, and they only had three assists on those seven made baskets, too. Yeah, no, I think that, again, that's that's sort of the worry about a guy who gets cooking and is just doing that is everyone kind of watches him cook. And, you know, Phoenix's offense, when it's at its best, has a lot of ball and player movement and that that kind of went away uh and again it's not this is not you know i think part of it is is credit to milwaukee obviously for you know cut letting them get only six corner three attempts in the two games in milwaukee but at the same time that balance again between you know okay I've, i've got a good look here let me take this and i've drawn two three defenders i could get a decent look here or i'll move it and we'll get some movement and we'll get a, you know, we'll get a layup. We'll get an open three. We'll get fouled. Um, and as part of that kind of you let other players sort of establish their rhythm. So when the time comes that other people need to do stuff, it's, they're not, they're not sort of cold. And, and I think again that the Booker takeover did that a little. And then especially with, with Paul not having much that game, they didn't really have a, a way to kind of generate any, any movement, any speed, any zip in their offense once Booker did pick up foul trouble. Yeah. How do you how do you think overall, I mean, there was the time with when Booker had four, the time that he had five, and then the time that he was still on the floor after he had six. Um <laughs> and seven. Ha- and seven. Uh, how do you think Money Williams handled that overall? Uh, I thought I thought in the third quarter it was fine. When he picked up his fourth foul pretty early, he basically gave him his normal rest a little bit early and then brought him back. Yeah, I agree. Uh, um, I thought he was too conservative at, when he had five fouls. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Was, I I will couch that uh, a little bit um, because I thought he was about two minutes late. So I, I'm of two minds of it. I I agree with you. Like in the way, and Nate and I were doing the game on Hot Mike. So like, do you have my my contemporaneous thoughts on this exist? Was that I thought it, it looked to me like what you should what you should do in that circumstance is. Don't define it unless it's extreme. Don't define when you're bringing him back by the score of the circumstance. Do it by when you think it makes intuitive sense. And I thought that was about two minutes too late. But the thing that makes me feel a little bit differently about it is whether they somehow don't call it or not, the way Devin Booker played with five fouls, which is another consideration in this is like so when a low foul player like there was a time with LeBron where where, where he had foul trouble and seemingly always against the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals it's different to play him in foul trouble and so I think Booker considering he committed an intentional foul with five fouls and 330 remaining in the game I'm a little bit more loath to have to, to give him more latitude because he didn't play with it. No, that's fair. That's actually um, sort of a side note. Uh, one of the things I looked at in, in my upcoming book was uh, uh, kind of looking at, at which players are most uh, prone to committing non-shooting fouls in the bonus. And I was surprised to see Booker's name near the top of that list. Um, that is which is Yeah. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a bunch of guys you'd expect. It's, you know, your, your Pat Beverly's, your, your Marcus Smart's, your P.J. Tucker's. Like those kind of players, and then like, and uh, and then Devin Booker. So maybe a guy who whose judgment is maybe a little questionable in like spots where you shouldn't foul. Um, in general, um, he is he is actually reasonably uh, a reasonably high foul player for uh, you know a perimeter non defender. Um, so that is that that is something that you have to keep in mind. But even for I thought for DeAndre Ayton in Game Three, um, well, okay. He's at risk of fouling out, but you're also at risk of losing the game because he's on the bench, which is the the outcome you're trying to avoid. So, what like the, the, I will say that the decision in Game Four about Booker was much closer than Game Four Three with Aiden, which I thought was was pretty poor 
from Monty Williams well, yeah, in terms of how conservative he was. Well, especially because that game was getting away from them, and that's something that you brought up a lot, Nate brings up a lot, of it doesn't matter if you're saving them if there's nothing left to save. Right, right. And then, and then the really interesting part about the the, the Aiden thing in, in in game three was they brought him back and didn't put him on Giannis. And it's just like, yeah. What what's what's the point? Like you're you're still feeding Jay Crowder to Giannis, and he's putting him in the basket every possession. What, and so what? It also brings up a limitation with Aiden, who has had a, a very nice playoff so far. Is that when he is further away from the basket, his whether it's instincts or judgment or whatever, is it's still developing. Like I, I don't think he's going to be bad at this forever, but generally speaking, he's been more tethered to his man than I think he should be, especially when facing a team that hasn't been reliable making those jump shots that you'd be conceding. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. Um, for a guy of his mobility, like that's that that is something that is that is a, a, an area of his game that is thus far unexploited, unexplored, undeveloped. Pick your pick your uh your descriptor there but yeah i think that's that i think that's right because i think the difference between the sun's ability to defend on the interior with Aiton both in the game but also Aiton near the rim and not is pretty night and day again they they play small and also they have no other healthy big guys who are playable in the series so that's that's a pretty big swing yeah it is and i part of why i think i've had trouble figuring out where the series is going to go is that we have templates for how both of these teams can win. And I would say that since Giannis has become himself, you know, game one, still working his way back. I mean, that's totally – I was stunned he even played. And he's been better the entire time than I would have expected. Since Giannis has been himself, A, he has been strong in all three games. And also, like, the Bucks have played a lot better. So there's a part of me that says, like, the – equilibrium in the series is more their direction. There will be more games like two, three, and four than there will be game one when you think about Giannis's centrality to the Bucks and his health, hopefully. You know, you never know where things are going to go, but reasonable expectations. That said, the Suns have home court advantage. They were still in game, they, you know, I, you, you could go either way with that in terms of game four. It's like they were still that competitive despite getting trucked in the possession game. I would so, go so I, I would go so far as to say that they should feel. I said this on Twitter that they should feel pretty sick about losing that game. I mean they 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 were losing the possession game and then they gave up seven offensive six offensive rebounds and one team offensive rebound in the last uh, five minutes or so of that game. Now the team offensive rebound they gave up was nah. a, was a not awesome call. Yeah, but. Uh, but not um, awesome, non awesome calls happen. Now I will yeah. I will say that the non call on Booker is felt to me to be different. The but because he wrapped the second hand, the first hand actually. But refs can be in bad position, and there the NBA is exceedingly hard to officiate. And a time and so oh, no, so I was I was I was talking about the uh, the the the, uh, the out of bounds that was clear. Oh, I know. Yeah, the PJ Tucker, um, the PJ Tucker play. I agree. No, no, the one that was clearly off of uh, Portis. Off the oh, that off. one. I thought you were talking about yeah. the one that was off P.J. Tucker's foot. Well, you know, pick and choose. Sure. Um, it's it, it's funny. Like I like I thought I, the, I thought, I thought that, that one was off eight and live, so I got it totally wrong. Yeah, I I, I thought that uh, it, it's funny because for most of the game, I thought that that Phoenix was getting a little bit of a tough whistle, and then Booker doesn't foul out, and it's like, well, I guess they they didn't get a tough whistle tonight. <laughs> um, sort of how that 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 one non call sort of swung all of that advantage the other way quickly. But yeah. yeah. But so I I think there is a clear path for either team to win this series. I think that the argument for the Bucks is actually pretty simple. A lot of the things that they've done better since game one can continue in some form. That Giannis has been great and there he has in many ways, he has a favorable matchup, I would say, in kind of both parts of the floor. The Suns, while they are in certain ways a deep team, they are not deep in the ways that necessarily matter against the Bucks. And for the Suns, I mean, they can play better, they've been in the mix, and they have home court. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated for where the series goes. And while there is the general idea, and I believe that the team that wins Game 5 will be heavy favorites to win the series, I would not be stunned if one team won six and seven, and that probably would be the Bucks. But I, I honestly think it could go either way. I mean, we've seen that before. Right? Yeah, that was that was uh, the round two against Brooklyn. Um, yeah. By the way, can I uh, can I can I break some news to you live on the pod just to get your reaction? I, I think I've already seen it, but I was thinking we would just spend the rest of the podcast on it. Uh, so because of team the the uh, 
the the weirdness of Team USA with certain players in the finals and other players in COVID protocols and Kevin Love uh, going home. Uh, Team USA has called up a new center. Do you know who it is? I do, and I'm so excited. <laughs> JaVale following, McGee. JaVale McGee following in in his mother's footsteps. His mom won a gold, as Mark Stein noted, his mom won a gold medal in 84, and I would not, like, it was a shot, a shot in the dark. I never thought he was being considered, much less would be chosen. And it'll be fun. I think that Greg Popovich coaching JaVale McGee for two weeks might be, like, I, I hope that they can do the equivalent of hard knocks for that because I'm extremely excited <laughs> to see how that goes. But I think JaVale can really help this team. I'm, I'm just sad there wasn't a Plumlee available. I mean, I'm sure there was. I mean, how could there not be a Plumlee available just mathematically? It's a fair point. Yeah, but the, the Team USA with no Plumleys and Zellers. What is the what is the world come to? I ask you. Uh, yeah, gonna have to gonna have to dust off a different Team USA uniform jersey for for those games. Uh, but and Keldon Johnson is is subbing for Beal. I really like Keldon Johnson. I think that they needed that the team needed another kind of wing guy. I'm excited for his opportunity. I'm surprised <laughs> just because I mean I, I love Keldon, but I, I guess they 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 ran out of Duke guys and had to start going to Spurs guys is is the explanation I have for that. Yeah, and also he was on the select team and apparently he's looked really good in in those those opportunities. And I mean, anytime you can add the you know the 160th best player in the NBA to uh, to Team USA, you uh, gotta, uh, but, but you what, do it. what would you know about ordering players? In- I nothing at all. Nothing at all. Uh, but uh, here, so uh, I will I will talk about Team USA yeah. in this way. <laughs> I would be significantly more skeptical of Team USA's viability than I am, especially in some ways, especially with their performance in the exhibitions, which I have not watched other than like five minutes of the Australia game. If Kevin Durant were not on the team, because there is basically no one internationally, at least that I can think of, that can really handle that. And Kevin Durant is a monster. And it's not I, just internationally. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's, there's no. Uh, we, I mean, we haven't talked enough about. Oh, I, I tore my Achilles in the, my first season back. I'm the best player in the NBA. We haven't, we haven't talked about that enough. I don't think. Right, and if I, he, <laughs> I mean, he was in serious consideration for my per minute MVP this year, regular season, and then he was better in the playoffs than he was in the regular in the regular season. Yeah. No, it's it it it, it is uh, stunning, basically, for, given given the history of uh, of of that injury. That's Wait, like he- and that's something I talked a little bit about on Real Jam Radio with Rob Mahoney last week. Is this concept that a lot of times you don't know, like the era that you're in, until you get a little bit more context and a little, potentially even a little bit of hindsight. I think it's possible that we're in like this Nets era, but it just didn't happen this first year because of the injuries. Oh, there! I mean, they—they're going to be. They should go into next season as substantial title favorites. Like I don't like, irrespective. I think of what else happens move wise this summer. The 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 Nets should be substantial title favorites next year. There well, especially in some ways because they're like it just pure. Conceptual terms. I mean, the Lakers will be very good next year, depending on. I mean, they'll be very good, even if they don't shake out their roster right, and we'll see if they do. But Kawhi Leonard having a partially torn ACL means that the Clippers are going to be in a very different place. Presumably, it also means that the Clippers are going to have a more strenuous route to the NBA Finals should they make it, because they'll be a lower seed. I mean, that even if Kawhi Leonard comes back at the All Star break or comes back in March. They're going to have to have weathered that storm, and as sadly comes up every year, part of the damaging element of an injury is not even just great player or whoever being out. It's that every subsequent injury is even more significant, and I think the Suns have been a good example of that. Like when they were looked like they were going to be without Dario Sharch and Torrey Craig, and you're like, oh crap, how's it going to go? And that's also why, you know, as Dante DiVincenzo is the fifth best starter for the Milwaukee Bucks, but his absence is incredibly significant. I uh, Yeah, I think, although they haven't, we, since we've been talking about the turnovers, I think they haven't missed him as much as they might have because Phoenix hasn't pressured Milwaukee's relative dearth of ball handlers as much as I thought they would. And, you know, he's not, he's not a, you know, an A-plus ball handler, but he is a, a perfectly capable secondary ball handler. He's a better ball handler than Pat Connaughton or Bryn Forbes or P.J. Tucker 
or, you know, basically anyone else they've put in that spot except for Jeff Teague. And yeah. Um, <laughs> so no, he's been, he's been an, an, uh, an incredible, um, miss. And that happens, you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate and many teams have been through worse, but you know, it's, a, it's another piece of context. I think, so one of the key questions that I was pondering going into this series was the balance of how many players you feel comfortable playing and how they fare. Now, I wasn't going to say, you know, Budenholzer can't play Portis or Teague or anybody else like that, but it was, you know, and, and to that extent, Bryn Forbes, like we wondered about that. And Portis, through his intensity and not being as attack, attacked as much defensively as I had anticipated, he's had a better series. I would say Teague has had a better series than anticipated, though that is a lot about it. That is like stepping over a low bar. And <laughs> and for the Suns, they did have that issue when, when Torrey Craig was out because of, of Sharich, but... And like Kaminsky, he failed that test. You know, like he was the, the the not only were the Suns horrendous when he was on the floor, but Kaminsky. Part of why I didn't think he should deserve warranted a place on on, a, on an NBA roster, you know, or at least in a rotation this year, is that Kaminsky doesn't really bring anything to the table. Like you think about, so there are a lot of players who are imperfect and flawed and can play a low-end rotation role in the league. And that's because they do, like, maybe one thing well enough or they don't do anything badly enough, those sorts of players. When Kaminsky was out there, what struck me was just, you can't run any defensive scheme because he can't do anything on defense, and he's your center. It's not like he's playing the two or something. So, like, Frank Kaminsky is, do you remember the uh, the old the Saturday Night Live, uh, the Linda Richmond coffee talk? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, God, you know, we're dating Frank, ourselves, aren't we? Yeah, I know. But like, you know, Frank Kaminsky is, is neither stretch nor a big discuss. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't shoot it well enough to, to get you the benefits of, of quote, a stretch big. He doesn't handle the ball, doesn't pat, doesn't do those, doesn't do those perimeter things that a stretch big might do. Uh, and, and then is just, is, is, a you know, is a, not a, he's a bad rim protector, bad rebounder, bad defender in space. So it's like all the bad of 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 that and none of the good. And so what does he what does he do for you? Like it there's there's the appearance of what should be a, a useful player without the without the actuality of it. Right. And that's the big challenge. You know, like there's something that comes up a lot about, you know, the when do you go small and when do you go big is what are you getting, what are you losing, what are you trying to stop? And part of the reason you go big is you're hoping to control what the other team can get at the rim, maybe the defensive glass, potentially the offensive glass. And if you're playing somebody who is tall but doesn't really contribute in those fronts, then you probably shouldn't be playing that tall guy. You're you're basically just playing a really bad small forward. Exactly. Like, and you're, like, you're, you're, I guess you're theoretically keeping some of the defensive assignments, but you could just do that another way. Yeah. Like, I think that— Like, Abdu- as- like Abdul Nader— much better basketball player than Frank Kaminsky. I mean, I was that was going to go even even a different. I would say that, like in terms of of being closer to able to con- be on the floor and contribute in this series, I would say Elijah Bryant is closer than, wow. than Frank Kaminsky. I think that's fair, though. Um, I mean, yeah, like, no, like St. Galloway, Etwan Moore, Javon Carter. Yeah, and yeah, there are elements of it. You're going to be putting guys in difficult spots to be sure. But that's an interesting name, by the way, uh, Javon Carter. Just you know, we just talked about how. Uh, I had, I had, I'm literally thinking about this for the first time right now. Um, so it's, it's, how it's they haven't heated, it, how they haven't heated up the Bucks ball handlers enough. Yeah. And, and, and thinking about it, like, oh, they got a guy, like, you know, a very, like, who knows if he, if he can come in, you know, having been, you know, in mothballs for however long and, and do that. But that's certainly something that, uh, I would be interested in seeing if, if for a couple minutes, especially like, in a, if, if, like, we see some Jeff Teague minutes or we see some, you know, you know, non, non Giannis minutes or something like that where you can have someone who can really get into, into ball handlers that way, um, as a way of sort of equalizing the turnover battle. And, uh, um, yeah, even thinking about it more, maybe, maybe that's a, like, something I've, I, uh, John Hollinger and I talked about this, like a way for the Suns to be a little more competitive in non-eight minutes, especially with Giannis on the floor, was to put some pressure on. Um, maybe that's, that's, maybe that's the, uh, that's the, that's the glass you break and, and at least give it a look. It's an idea. Yeah, and, it is an idea. Yeah. And I don't think of Carter's limitations as being so severe that he absolutely can't play on the floor offensively in the series. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of it comes to bear, but I mean, yeah, I would, I would say it's, well, it's, 
And it's and the difference for the Suns is also like I think they have with Craig available. I mean, I like Cam Johnson a lot. Um, I think they have enough guys to get to forty eight credible minutes. But having different theories, having different ways to challenge your opponent. Sometimes that necessitates at least trying different personnel. It's not quite the same thing as we don't have enough guys, let's try everyone. But it is we want to try this different thing and the guys we have aren't great at it. Yeah, and I was like I was gonna say, like, especially if if we're at a point where um Phoenix's offense is is kind of devolved into a little station to station, um Carter's offensive limitations kind of don't matter. You know, if if it's just if it's if they're if they're playing Booker Hero Ball, sort of like um, in, in a similar way that uh, that um, you know when the Bucks offense kind of devolves into a little dump and chase, like PJ Tucker not really having much you know use as a half court offensive player doesn't matter as much. Now some of that is uh, part of the reason their offense devolves that way is because PJ Tucker standing in the corner not being guarded. So it's it's a little bit of a chicken or egg thing, I suppose. But uh, just if we're talking about the balance and what is you know what is causing the scoreboard to move one way or the other, um, generating a couple turnovers, getting uh, a few a few fast break looks might be worth the additional cludginess of an offense that might be already kind of molassesy to begin with. Yeah, and and that was something that I thought was fascinating about game four this is crunch time so it's not the same personnel but i was far more worried about whether the bucks could generate good shots and part of it with middleton was was huge during those last few minutes but the sun's offense being as molasses as it was is potentially significant and, and the bucks deserve credit i mean i thought their defense did a very good job overall but the suns were not getting good shots in the half court over those last like six minutes and again that's that, that that's partially a function of of uh you know, have to give Drew Holiday a lot of credit yes. for for you know what he's done on particularly Chris Paul. Um, I think uh, that was a big change in the series. Was uh, you know game one the Bucks tried PJ Tucker on Chris Paul. That was uh, I'll go so far as to say it was a disaster um, from a from a defensive standpoint for them. Um, and and the Holiday moving there has uh, helped a lot. Now that that means you have a lesser defender on Booker. Whether it's Connaughton or Tucker or Middleton, but I think it's it's you do better in the wash. Um, and as you know, Chris Paul looked tired, looked tired for a lot of that game. Did not have great legs, and you to what extent is that sort of extraneous to anything Holiday's doing? I don't know, but you do have to give Holiday some of the credit for that. And so you have you know Booker playing you know justifiably to a degree. You know, kind of hero ball. You have Paul being ineffective and the other three guys on the court, whoever they are, unless you're going like three guards with campaign, like needs you to deliver to the ball to them for them to be offensive contributors. Yeah, you're not going to get good shots under, under those circumstances. Um, and so you're basically going to, going to have to rely on, on, uh, on Booker, you know, Donovan Mitchelling your, his way to a bunch of tough makes. Yeah. And. I will admit that I wasn't sure which way that... You're just going to let that shade pass? You're going to... Yeah, I think I will. I think okay. I will. Um, but, like, the there's a challenge that comes in of comparative advantage. I guess that's probably the, the terminology that I would use for it. If it's, it's not only about, you know, like the, I think about it from kind of a game theory standpoint. If it's you're choosing between two different things, but part of what you're choosing is also how the other thing fares, and... That's what I think what you nailed there is that leaving Booker with a, with an inferior defender is more, it's more manageable. Now, that doesn't mean it's manageable at all times. And Booker also like, part of it, you could make an interesting argument that with certain players, and I'm not saying Booker's in this, I need to think about it a lot more. There's this idea of like, this guy's so good, we can't, we can't, oh, actually, here's the analogy I'll use. If you're double teaming anyway, you don't need to put your best defender on the guy. Like, that's sort of an idea. And so, like, with Devin Booker, sometimes it's like, if he's just going to make this shot anyway, we don't need to put Drew Holiday on him. We can put Pat Conson on him, and if he's going to make it, he's going to make it. Now, there are risks to that, of course. Yeah. No, that's that, that's right. JaVale McGee oh. is an Olympian. I'm still, like, as much as we're talking about other things, I'm still primarily thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. It's just, you know, we I think we can we can talk about how we got here and, <laughs> you know, decisions were made. Though I do want to say, like, since we're talking about it, I do want to say that, like, there's a lot of, oh, they compressed the schedule for the Olympics. What are they doing? And it's like, okay, the Olympics was kind of a convenient date 
but really they compress the schedule because they want to get back on the normal schedule next year. And so without the, without like planning for the Olympics, the season goes two weeks longer. Um, from a compression standpoint, how much difference does that really make? Well, and, and think about the problems that would have happened if they didn't compress and then with how short the off season would have been. Like that would have been, would have been crazy. And I have. No, like, and that's what I mean. Like yeah. this, the, the, like, you know, without the Olympics, you, it, there wasn't actually that much additional room to, to, I think the Olympics was just kind of a, a convenient date. Let's call it this date instead of that date a week later or that date a week, year, week earlier. Right. And, um, I, so I don't, I don't think that. I don't think that the Olympics is really the boogeyman for the, the compressed schedule so much as the desire of everybody involved to get back onto kind of October to May schedule. And along those lines, the bigger culprit here is not when the season ended, but how many games were played between the start of the season and the end of the season. And that is, it led to an unfortunate result, but players and owners signed up for it. And while I am deeply unhappy with how that turned out, and I am I am frustrated with you know some of the challenges that will go in future seasons. You and I have talked about that before, both on the podcast and off the podcast. It is collectively bargained, and that doesn't make it right, but it does mean that it's not like exploitation or anything. It just means that the individuals involved, the entities involved, prioritized maximizing revenue, maximizing salaries, and everything else over. Risk for injury. And if that's what consenting intelligent parties choose to do, I can lament it, but I also should, like, feel, feel that it's significant to acknowledge that that is the way it is. Also, we, like, it, it sort of has gotten lost in that discussion that, you know, there is a base rate of injuries. Like, injuries yes. happen. Like, there was a little bit of, like, snake eyes in terms of who they happened to this season. But, you know, you talk about the star players missing games this postseason. How many of them are were attributable to the schedule? Um, like Kyrie Irving spraining an ankle on a play at the rim. That's not a that's not a compressed schedule injury. Giannis's knee injury was not a compressed schedule injury. Something like Kawhi's like knee injury, like you can go either way on that. Like maybe there's I mean, some James Harden's hamstring. No, James Harden's hamstring. Like that's that's that you know that's that's like the initial hamstring injury that then recurred. Like that's plausibly a result of you know compressed schedule. So like that like you know there's some, but then like Jalen Brown like a wrist injury. That's not a schedule thing. Like so yes, there, there's been there, there's been some, and there's been unfortunately more. Um, but like the causality and the increased rate of those injuries to star players isn't you know oh like there was 11 stars or 10 all-stars who missed games these playoff that's all because of the compressed schedules no. like Trey Young didn't step on a ref's foot because the schedule was compressed mm, probably not uh but I, I I think that what it the way that it works so you have kind of two different elements it modestly but not dramatically increases the risk of like random chance things just because you have more opportunity. You're playing more high stress minutes and you could say that there's something there. I think that's small. It's, 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 it exists, but it's small. And when you think about that, if you replace that time with practices, guys get hurt in practices all the time, you know, all those sorts of things. It's more the like, you know, year of the calf, the, the muscle injuries, yes. those types of problems, I think. And so what it leads to is like, you could think about it kind of like a Jenga tower where the tower is going to get less stable the higher it goes, especially when you think about that it's getting thinner and thinner at the bottom. And so it was always going to be unstable. Like that's, yeah. that it was going to be there, but this adds a few, a few extra rows and a few extra rows add some risk. And also there was some really bad luck this year in terms of the players who had those injuries. And you could argue in certain cases they had more stressors, they had more other things, but also some of it was just bad luck that a, a larger portion of those happen not only to star players, but to incredibly important star players. You know, like the amount of teams that were viable title contenders whose season, who didn't have a way to kind of bounce back from it. I think the Lakers are a really good example. Like the Lakers just didn't, they didn't have the horses. Like when, when Anthony Davis went down, I think they would have, like if Davis doesn't get hurt, I think they win that series. But it, you know, that injury changes the complexion. Brooklyn probably wins I mean, I would say almost definitely wins that series if Kyrie doesn't get hurt in addition to everything else that's going on. And that in no way, shape, or form makes either one of these teams a less legitimate champion. It just makes that part of the story of this season. 
I don't. You can miss me with all the asterisks. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no team ever gets an asterisk. Yeah. No. And and okay. Let's let's talk about the Suns specifically. And I've talked about this before. But like, oh, they got so lucky how injured the Lakers were. Well, that's. I mean, you're you're picking some end points there. Yeah. Because how injured the Lakers were is why the Lakers were a seven seed. They were they were the second best team across the regular season, and not just like a bum hunter beat up on the bad teams. They were very good against very good teams, also. They were a worthy second best record in the league, and as as their reward, they get to play LeBron and Anthony Davis in the first round. That's so, a really good wh- point. So where's the, like does, does that that bit of unluckiness like not count, or or did the fact that they played a team that turned out to be about as good as the seventh seed? Uh, okay, they they earned the two seed, and you know with Anthony Davis missing some games, LeBron maybe slightly hobbled. That's about a seventh seed, give or take. Um, Okay, that's that's they earned that. So where like on balance is that lucky of them? They didn't they they didn't just like eke by the the shorthanded nuggets. They smashed them. You know, so it's like a little bit of 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 give them their their due credit. I'm not going to say give them their flowers because that's like I don't understand because that. we're too that's old weird. for that. We're definitely we're definitely too old for that. And I don't like it's one of those phrases that just was everywhere all of a sudden. And I don't. But um. But that cloud has passed, so I'll stop yelling at it. Um, yeah. So, but I feel like the Suns have gotten have gotten sort of short shrift in in that discussion more than than any other team. Like it seems like the Suns' easy path has been discussed far more than the Bucks not having to play Harden and, and Kyrie, for example. Yeah. Maybe I'm imagining that, but well, yeah. and I mean, so the Bucks only there were there were three great teams in. The regular season in the Eastern Conference, the Bucks played one of them, and the one that they played was in, insanely injured. Yeah, and I mean they are also one of them, so it's, it's not like they would yeah. have had to go through all. Oh, right, they were. So it's it, but again, like you 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 play the games in front of you, and every every team that has ever won a title has been lucky, even if that luck is just avoiding bad luck. Right. So again, it's a this has been a, been a worthy final series against two. You know, very good teams. And regardless of who made the finals this year, it, I don't think there was – there were no great teams this year with the possible exception of if Brooklyn had gotten the playoff version of all their role players they got and uh, had everybody healthy. Not, not the playoff maybe version that's of Joe it. Harris probably, but the other one. Well, yeah, but no, but the playoff version of like Blake Griffin sure. and, and and Bruce Brown and, and Jeff Green and, and so on and so forth. Um, but then there – this was always going to be sort of a, a transition year between like dynastic elements, right? So we got two very good teams in a year that we were going to have two very good teams in the finals. So yeah, and, and two comparatively healthy teams, teams that made it through. I mean, yeah. not perfect, but pretty good. I mean, Divin by the way, to- uh, ankle like random bad step ankle injury. That's not a schedule thing, anyway. Right. Go on. Absolutely. And so I, I think that we could appreciate this. For what it is, and you brought up the idea of a transition, and I think that might be right, but I, you know, you and I think about the offseason, I don't know if your brain has shifted to the extent that mine has, but my inclination is that the title picture is going to be fairly stable for next year, meaning I don't know that there's a, if we put the Nets in tier one when they're healthy, which I think they completely deserve, I don't think that there is a, there's necessarily a newcomer, but I, but that could change, you know. Like we'll see what happens with Damian Lillard. There have some been some murmurs on Friday before we recorded this, but I'm going to wait until those murmurs become more of like a shout, which they have not yet. But also, I think that you know, like the the best of the best, the six or seven best players in the NBA. I don't think any of them are changing teams this year. Maybe Kawhi does, but also Kawhi's out for most of next year. So even then, that would be a different shift. Yeah, and I think that's the the the, the bigger thing is um, you know there there are a couple of the teams that would be there next year are probably sort of you know Denver and, and the Clippers are probably you know sort of boxed out a little bit. Yep. Um, now the, the the they both in prospect will be like you know you talk about the unluckiness of of getting the Lakers in the first round next year. One or both of those teams could be somewhat similar to that next year. Um, you know if. He, you figure if, if, if like Jamal Murray comes back with six weeks left in the season, um, by, by, you know, um, the, the playoffs, what does that team look like? Um, especially, especially if, you know, 
Michael Porter Jr.'s had a, f- a full year of being like a secondary player and has grown into that a little bit and then can move back to being like the, the third option again. And then he's an overqualified third option. So, but it's also because of the Suns. I, I also think that there's a chance that, that, that some one or multiple teams is going to do something silly th- thinking that they're going to be that next year. I um, may or may not be looking in the direction of New Orleans. Right. The, Lesson of we have a good young team. We have a we had a few positive signs like the Bubble Suns, and all we need is this like capable veteran to push us over the top. Is going to lead at least a couple of front offices into overly aggressive and foolhardy moves. And I like that you brought up New Orleans. They are a team. Uh, so I I I've often they, they before, are a team. Yes. Yeah. Before often before <laughs> a season, I talked about how a like a team has disaster potential. Like you can see how it could fall apart, whether that's personalities or maybe they're built on a flimsy foundation or anything else. I have I three. What? For next year. I have three for next year. Three teams? Yeah. Three, okay, three, so let's, let, we'll get to that in a second. But, um, so I think the New Orleans offseason has disaster potential because yeah. they don't have a ton of flexibility. There are a couple different ways that they could create some, but almost all of those are going to be painful. And while I think David Griffin has done a couple of really good things as the general manager of the Pelicans, he also has a very specific philosophy that I think is challenging for the Pelicans. And maximizing such an unusual top piece as Point Zion, it takes it takes a lot to get it right. Yeah. But let's get to and, your disaster potential teams unless you have Oh, them. so one one is one is New Orleans, uh, yes. kind of for, for the reasons you mentioned. And, like, it's going to be so, a, a combustible group, shall we say, next are, year. Are these off-season disaster potential or in-season next year or both? Um, no, this is sort of like from okay from when the finals ends to this point next year. Okay, so tenth June sixteenth next year. It's my sister's birthday, by the way. Um, happy birthday in advance, Alex. Um, um the the teams we say, man, that just that just went off the rails for them. Um, and you know we'll leave Portland aside because who knows what's going on there. I think that's like I, I'm not sure their season can go off the rails because it has yeah, to be on, never the rails been on the rails. To go off the rails. So uh, I think the other two possibilities are the Knicks um, because you know the, the you know outperform expectations career year from Julius Randle um, going into next year. Knicks are back, baby. Second year of Tibbs where you maybe don't get the the. Uh, we're playing harder than everybody else. The same, we're playing harder than everybody else bump. I could see that going really badly. And maybe after they've made some expensive win now signings. Um, and you know, unfortunately, uh, not that it's the same situation, but you know, when the Blazers made the, uh, 2019 conference finals, they kind of thought they were in a different place than they actually were. Um, that I think there's, there's some, Parallels to that and the Hawks this year. Now the Hawks are still a growing team, but I can see depending on, you know, what they, they do, they bring on John Collins back. They don't bring John Collins back. Um, you know, uh, Gallo is injured or he's not. Um, I can see that I can see the Hawks next year getting a little bit disease of Mord with all of their young guys thinking, wow, we had a really good year. Let's let, I was, I was, it was because of me. I, I need more. I need more touches. I need more money. I need more playing time. Well, and you got and, into a little bit of that with the John Collins thing is that it also just so happens that a lot of those players are up for new contracts yeah. pretty soon and getting the power and confidence dynamics in line for those sorts of teams can be really thorny. I, so I'm going to throw another one that I think is, I don't think it's going to come to a head in 21-22. I wonder how the Golden State Warriors are going to react if they're not a Tier 1 team when all their guys are back. And I think there is a distinct okay. possibility well, that is the case. They are, no, let me, let me, no, when they realize they're not a Tier 1 team. Okay, I think that's, that's reasonable. Yeah, no, they're, they're not. Like, you know, even any, with, unless you're, you're, you've got a time machine for Draymond, basically. Like even even like ninety five percent of of pre Achilles pre ACL clay they're not a tier one team. Okay, so let's. I, I, is, that, is that is that a hot take? I don't think I don't think, I don't think it's particular. I think it's a little warm, but I don't think it's super hot. I mean, especially when you consider how shallow the Warriors would be at yeah. at full strength. Like they're oh, put, they're, put it, that team up against the the Blazers, and which roster is better? I think the Warriors are better, but it's um. 
Especially when you think about the playoffs when they can play their best players a higher proportion of the time. But as a regular season team, you know, and dealing with the ebbs and flows of a season, that's going to be a real challenge for them. And it's true that most of the Warriors' best players are under contract for a long time. I'm not sure what Steph Curry's going to do with his extension. I, you know, I'm not super plugged in on in, into the Curry camp or anything like that. Also, Curry, he hasn't been a very drama-centric guy in his past, but there is a reason for him potentially to hold off on signing his extension until deeper into the season. Cause when you're on the last year of your deal, non, you know, non rookie scale extension guys, you can do that. And especially if Clay's not ready to start the year, I think it would be a wise idea unless he just wants to be a warrior for the rest of his career to just see where this goes. No, that's, uh, I mean, that, like, that's, a, that's an additional wrinkle that I was, I mean, I was just thinking about like from the, on the floor standpoint. Sure. Like, there's, there's a lot of, yeah. Well, and there, of, there are not a lot of ways unless they're going to give up an absolute, like, there are ways for them to improve, but the financial constraints on this team appear to, it appears to hit the limits that ownership is comfortable with, and that's fine. I mean, they're spending, a, they're spending a, a ton of money on this team. They can make whatever. Well, I think, I think that there was, that, like, there, there may have been sort of a hot stove effect from this year. Sure. Where it's like, no, well, no, we're going to be good still. We're going to, we're going to bring in Kelly Oubre for Clay Thompson. That's going to make everything okay. And uh, sort of predictably it didn't, and it certainly didn't uh, to the tune of, you know, uh, I, I forget what it was, but what did, what did Kelly Oubre's contract end up, end up costing them in, in real dollar terms? Well, it was less than some of those crazy things because – um, because the way they structured the tax, I would guess it was roughly like thirty million, but I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, so thirty to forty million, and he, you know, produced at a level less than that, and that's a you know that's a team that is battling for the eighth seed and did well to get there. I thought, um, yeah, it's not it's not uh, you 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 appreciate the willingness to spend, but. Sometimes it's it's better to just not just from a purely like powder dry keep your team building options in better order uh, perspective. Yeah, you know, there's the like even even the deepest pockets uh, just throwing money at the problem for years after year after year can just dig it can end up digging the hole deeper. And to which I point you to the New York Knicks. It can. And, and you brought up the Knicks for disaster potential, and I think that's reasonable in terms of the difference of expectations. But I think it's possible, and if not probable, that they have a meaningfully better roster next year than they than they do. I mean, they the ability to add a more capable offensive creator to slide Julius Randle into a different role, which will be unfortunate in terms of the surprising success they had, but also make the Knicks a better team. Defense will just depend on what they prioritize. But the idea of adding like potentially using some of this prodigious cap space should they choose to go that route instead of retention for one of the three or four best point guards on the market. I think that it could be a better team next year, but they could also be a better team and have a worse result. No, I, I like, again, we're, we're talking about like disaster potential. Like we're, we're looking at kind of left tail outcomes. Yes, that's true. Of, of thing if the places where if things go bad, they could go really bad. This isn't, this isn't a prediction so much as identifying the places that have, you know, you know the the uh, the the uh, Jay Billis like tremendous downside potential. Yeah, I think that's true. And so, like again, I think probably Hawks fans are going to yell at me again. I'm not predicting that. I'm uh, I'm I'm just saying that there there are are scenarios where you know it's in it, again it's something we've seen where a team gets good too fast and then the next year is is just it's it's a little it's a little acrimonious. Well, and here's here's another way that this happens. I mean, Portland a couple of years ago is a really good example of this. When a team's playoff performance outstrips what they were in the regular season in a way that you think the regular season is more predictive. So Atlanta, they did deal with a bunch of injuries both in the regular season and in the playoffs, but they were they incidentally tied with the Knicks. They were 11th, 12th in cleaning the glasses version of net rating. Okay, you know, 11th and 12th, the Hawks made the conference finals. They were one of the quote-unquote final four. If they finish with like the 10th best net rating next year and then have a commensurate playoff result for the team with the 10th best net rating, I think there will be important people that would see that as a disappointment when that would be a remarkable success. I I think you would you like if if them having them having the 10th best net rating next year qualify as a disappointment given where they were this year, given 
how well they played once Nate McMillan became the coach, given that, that, you know, a lot of their best players, they're all, all basically all of their most important players aside from Clint Capella are in the, the, uh, the, the favorable part of an aging curve. Um, I think that, that if they were, if they were only the 10th best team by net rating next year, like that in itself would be, you know, the, even if they get to be like the, the seventh and that, that means they're, you know, just on, based on, on sort of, uh, you know, ranking things out, the seventh best team is probably a reasonably, reasonably meek second round exit is probably the, the objective expectation. And if so, if they do that and that happens, I think even that would be seen as tremendously disappointing. Which is, you know, on some level, that's good. It's good to have expectations, but it's also it's ne- dangerous. To, it's dangerous and needing to calibrate in that this is something that uh, you know that that um, I get. You know, I I had left before the next season, but this is something that we had to remind ourselves in the uh, twenty nineteen off season with Milwaukee is like, oh, we got to the conference finals and, and fell short. We don't start next season at the conference finals. Right. We have to get back there, and you know the Bucks. They lost. You know, bubble was weird. Things happened. They lost in the second round to to Miami. Um, and I think that's again for for a team that's that their first kind of rodeo, remembering that they still have to. You know, they don't just get to start on level five. There's no, there's no save. This is like, you know, original Nintendo system where, where you have to, you have to beat all the first levels again. You can't pick up where you left off. No, no passcodes. Uh, so I yeah. think this is a worthwhile way to kind of talk about, to kind of set, set some of this stuff up. The five teams with the cleaning glasses version of it, the lowest opponent three point shooting percentage. Number five, fifth worst, Phoenix Suns. Fourth worst, Lakers. Third worst, Atlanta Hawks, second worst, Utah Jazz, first worst, New York Knicks. I mean, that's it's that's the camp regression right there, right? It's it, it, it's camp regression, and just for the sake of completeness, from the from the fifth best to the first best. So this is not what you want. Opponent shooting from three this regular season. Fifth worst or fifth best, Toronto Raptors. Fourth best, Houston Rockets. Third best, Cleveland Cavaliers. Second best, Milwaukee Bucks. Best Minnesota Timberwolves. I would say that three of those teams probably earned that. Yes, but. I would too. <laughs> but the but, other yeah. two, if that, you know, if there's regression to the mean on that front, like, I mean, that that's one of the bigger parts of the, like, the Toronto and Milwaukee defensive experiences that has kind of fallen by the wayside. So Toronto went from having the second best opponent effective field goal percentage last year to having the 20th best. And some of that was, you know, their season going off the rails and everything else like that. But another part of it was like giving up a high volume of threes, and this being the year that the teams made all of them. Yeah, no, that's 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 certainly something that that it will be in, something I will be watching intently next year. Like, what kind of shooting environment are we in? Are we in? You know, normally, again, an open three is normally about a thirty-eight in the, in the low thirty-eights for across the NBA. This year, it was like thirty-nine-five for most of the year. Um, if the league is actually shooting, going to shoot thirty-nine-five on uncontested threes going forward, that it doesn't seem like much, but that's a pretty drastic change in the math for defensive schemes. Whereas if it goes back to 38, like then, you know, then certain things become much, certain strategies become much more viable and in fact favorable. Um, but we, we don't know, like, cause we, cause it was hard enough to determine the mechanism for it this year. Yeah. So, yeah. You and I could talk forever. Is there anything else that you think is really pressing pertinent? Something that's percolating in your mind that you want to discuss, or are we, or can we, can we mark it off here? I think that this we, 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 I mean, again, we'll have plenty to talk about after the season. I mean, I don't want, don't want to get too much into like previewing like the player tiers, which is sort of where my where my mind is sort of naturally turning since I'm not really a draft guy. Um, it's, it's one of the luxuries of, of coming back to the, the public space and the team side is I didn't have to care about college basketball, so I and, chose not to. And we're also we're, we're also not at the point where we will do the full push for your book, but I will let you do a partial partial push for the book, and I will also do one in the outro. Yeah, no, it's a, I actually finished my final, final edits. How, how great a feeling is that, by of, the way? Uh, of the mid-range theory this week. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Although I'm still sort of like I'm wrangling uh, blurbs and stuff like that, but it's, it, it feels good. Um, it'll come out in November, and I think it's a really good, uh, if I do say so myself, a really good look at at sort of how we got to where we are in terms of the NBA style of play and how statistical analysis can uh, 
help reveal some of those trends and things, kind of the, the reasons why certain things work and don't. I asked Seth a question a few months ago, and he's like, actually, I kind of answered this in the book, so you sent me one chapter, and it was it was excellent. Not only did it answer my question, but it gave a lot of other interesting stuff. Um, Wh- and, which, which one was that? I don't remember that. Uh, Jeremy Lin and... Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I remember now. So that was... But so I, I've only seen a little bit of it, but I'm very excited by what I've seen, and of course... Seth and I will talk about that at length in the future when we get closer to the mid-range theory coming out. But thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, as always. Thanks again to Seth for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can also read The Mid-Range Theory, his book, when it comes out later this year. And you can listen to him on Nerder She Wrote and wherever else Seth appears. And also, that's a great reason to follow him on Twitter, at Seth Partnow, S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Love talking with him and helping me kind of change my thoughts on the series is particularly interesting. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is particularly great for Real GM Radio in particular because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It will be weekly, but that day will always change. It's my availability, guest availability, all that fun. Also, you can spread the word, whether that's writing a rate, uh, a rating or review in the podcast player we're choosing, Apple, Spotify, wherever, or just telling people, hey, this episode, this podcast is worth your attention. Really do appreciate all of that. You can also check out my other work. Have a couple of collaborative pieces that have come out at The Athletic recently. Did one with Law Murray on the Clippers that came out on Friday. Then Kelsey Russo on the Cavs and John Krasinski on the Ben Simmons T-Wolves idea. Those have all come out in the last week or so. You can check check out those. Have some other things that are in the offing, kind of more gradual. That was the, the big rush. And then I know there will be other requests, other conversations in the near term. Also, Dunked On, still going on strong. Nate and I doing the public episode Sunday night slash Monday morning, and then Dunked On Prime the rest of the week. We're actually doing a big sale right now because the mock-off season is coming up soon. And so we're doing uh, annuals for less per month than the monthly rate. So if you're wanting to be in, you can check that out. Also, 99% sure I will be spending Game 5 in the Discord, which is available to Dunked On Total Access subscribers and chatting with them and everything. Our Discord community is actually absolutely fabulous. You can check that out if you are a subscriber and you can join up if you are not one yet because Nate and I aren't doing what we've normally been doing, which is hot mic because he has a wedding to attend. So we're going to be doing hot mic for game six and then game seven if necessary, but not for game five on Saturday. So you can do that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I promise I will read it. I try to respond. I am not as great at that as I want to be, but I do read everything. And that's, so I tell you what I'm doing, and then you can consider it as you want to. I actually already have a guest lined up for next week, but as those of you know, I'm superstitious, and I do not say a guest until the episode is already recorded. So I'm excited about it, but I'll leave it at that. At that. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. Thank you.